0: Well, it's official. I'm almost human again. Officer, I saw the driver who hit me. His name was Johnny Walker. So what's your story? You're the poor kid that never got to go to Exeter or Andover. Despite my privileged upbringing, I'm actually quite well balanced. I have a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> Maybe you're just better with the old integers than you are with people. My first grade teacher, she told me that I was born with two helpings of brain but only half a helping of heart. (laughs) Really? Wow, she sounds lovely. The truth is that I... I don't like people much. And they don't much like me. But why? With all your obvious wit and charm. (laughs) Seriously, John. Mathematics? Mathematics is never going to lead you to higher truth. And you know why? Because it's boring. It's really boring. You know, half these schoolboys are already published. I cannot waste time with these classes and these books <coughs> memorizing the weak assumptions of lesser mortals. <laughs> I need to look through to the governing dynamics. Find a truly original idea. That's the only way I'll ever distinguish myself. It's the only way that I'll ever... Massive.
1: Yes. That movie that you saw there is a movie that's... Uh, it's, it's a little bit old by now, but it's a movie called A Beautiful Mind, and uh, it's loosely based on the life of John Nash, this incredible, uh, brilliant uh, ma- mathematician, who has kind of found himself there. You see a a scene where he's at Princeton, he's gonna go for his masters, he's gonna go, and he has the brightest mind that could be out there. But The problem for John Nash, and you heard it there in that dialogue, that interaction that he has, is that he's trying to figure out how does he make sense of his life? How does it all add up? He knows what it is that he's good at, the problem is, is he doesn't know why that makes a difference. He's trying to figure out uh, what it will take for him to feel like he has meaning, he has significance, he has a place that his slot in life, the, the, the place that he occupies in life, that, that that could actually matter, that that actually counts for something. And, and maybe if he could come up with one original idea, if he could press the boundaries of mathematics in a way that it's never been pressed before, then, then maybe if, then, and only then, then, then he'll count. Then it will add up. The problem is he's not going to find it there, is he? We know that much to be true. Not because we know the way that the story ends for John Nash, but we know that in our own life. It's what we all struggle with. It's what we all try to, to wrestle with. We, we try to reconcile in our minds. Is, is how, do I, how do I make sense of the life that I've been given to live? I love the things that I do, Hopefully. I love what it is that I've found myself pursuing in life and the people that are around me, hopefully. But it seems as if something's missing. It's not adding up. It doesn't seem to be enough to, to satisfy my soul. And maybe a better way to put it is how do I, how do I understand and how do I discover what my purpose what my purpose is? Why am I here? Not just here right now, but why am I here? Does my life, does it count? And where do I find the answer for that? For a lot of us, we we, we try to find it in, in, in a wonderful way to, through the, the places that we occupy in our kind of our, our, our nine-to-five, Monday-to-Friday lives, whether that's at work or whether that's at school. So if I can find the place that I occupy, my occupation, the thing that that occupy, if I can find absolute meaning in that, then, then it will all just magically align for, for me. But does it? Is that what our occupations are for? Or is there something more? Because what John Nash is trying to discover isn't what mathematics is going to allow him to do as an occupation. What John Nash is really searching for, it's the same thing that all of us are searching for, is is what's our calling? What have we been uniquely, individually called to do? It's not our occupation, it's... It's our vocation. Vocation—that word—is comes from the Latin, which it literally means voice or, or, or calling. What are you called to do? And it most definitely has everything to do with finding joy and being able to live out your faith at, at work and at school, which is the series that we're going to uh, spend the rest of the summer in, which is is just a complete absolute mind-blowing thing to say. The summer goes so fast. But we find ourselves in the last month before some of you are teachers and you're thinking, oh my gosh, dear God, don't let these next few weeks go by because I don't want to go back to school. And some of you who are are, are parents are saying, dear God, let these weeks go by fast because I can't wait to send my, my kids off to school. And not all of you have kids that are in school. Not all of you are teachers but it's the school calendar that kind of organizes our our lives and so as the as the summer is winding down which uh, as a side note <laughs> the way the weather is right now seems like the summer's winding up and i wish it would cool wind down a little bit cool off a little bit but as the summer winds down we kind of get into this new rhythm and so we're going to look at how do we how do we live our life of faith in these places how do we find our calling in the things that we occupy what does it mean to, to live out our faith? How does it mean, what does it mean to, to, to find meaning in, in the places that we find ourselves in, and to be able to answer the question very honestly of, of how can I be used? If I were to ask you that, in your daily life, how, how, could, God, how could God use you? Or or maybe, how how is God God using you? And some of you, you'd be able to answer that very quickly. You'd be like, hey, this is the way I feel that God's placed, the reason that God's placed me here, and here are the things that I think that God's doing through me, and that comes like second nature to you. But I I think that there's also a lot of us who, we struggle to answer that question. Talk to a lot of people who are are wrestling with this idea of purpose and, and significance and identity. When you ask them, well, how, how could God use you? There, there are two myths that they, that they buy into. A lot of us buy into it. On one, you say, well, I can't be used because I don't have worth. I, I'm, I'm unworthy. What I've done, where I've been, where I come from. that just kind of out of the box, from the start, from the get-go, that kind of disqualifies me. The second reason is quite similar, but a little bit different. You say, it's not that kind of thing, but it's the fact that I don't think that I have anything that God could use. I look at other people and I, I see how, how obviously God could use them, work through them. Allow them to, to, to live out their faith at, at work and at school in ways that would be very impactful. But, but I guess I'm just not like that. I don't have anything that, that is of value. I'm not an argumentative person most of the time. But if that's you, I'll argue with you because I believe to the bottom of my core that you've been created in the image of God and God is is working in you and, and God's working through you. That's not just my opinion. I mean, it's biblical. It's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, this this early group of believers that are trying to answer this this very same question. This question isn't something that has just come about in in, in the, the recent generations. This is a question that's spanned all of the generations. And so Paul writes to the church in Philippi and he says, there's never been the slightest doubt in my mind. Think about the confidence that Paul has to say that. There's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you. Maybe we should just pause there for just a moment. That God has already started a great work in you. Do you believe that? I mean, you're here. Whether that's here in this room, whether that's at Hope Waukee, whether that's online at one of our local, you're here. And, and, and Pastor Nick here in West Des Moines said at the beginning of the service, like we don't believe it's an accident that you're here. That God, God is doing a great work already in you. Whether you know it, acknowledge it, or accept it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, there's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you, he's going to keep at it. And he's going to bring it to a flourishing finish. He's faithful to complete it, other translations say it's not just Paul who writes those words to the early church in Philippi. It's Jesus who says those words, And the most well-known teaching that Jesus gives. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's come, he's announced his kingdom, he goes and he goes out onto a hilltop and there is a crowd that is gathered to hear what it is that he has to say. Like this is going to be his kind of signature teaching. And so Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he starts it with something called the Beatitudes. Blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. Which people can already tell his kingdom is a little bit different. And then Jesus says to this gathering of people, many of which didn't occupy the places in life that would be valued. And so Jesus says to this group of people, much to their shock, he says, you're the light of the world. You're like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. And I imagine the people that are there, like "Does does he even know the collection of people that are here? How could he say to us, That we have anything that could illuminate the the, the world around us. like That we would be like the city on a hilltop that that provides the recognition of a destination that would bring safe harbor. But Jesus says, no, you're, you're the light. Light's a powerful thing, isn't it? caught yourself ever in a, in a place where it's just complete pitch dark it's just complete just there's no light at all I remember uh, when I was about a uh, fourth grader I slept over at my best friend Nate's house now I'd known Nate my entire life I was so familiar with his family but I went to to uh, sleep there this night I'll never forget it. I can remember it as if it were yesterday We went to bed and Nate's family, like they didn't believe that any light should be in their house at all at night. Like I was a kid, I didn't sleep with a nightlight, but I wanted a door cracked somewhere so at least if I would wake up in the middle of the night, I could see my fingers in front of my face. That wasn't Nate's family. Woke up in the middle of the night and I had to go to the bathroom. So I, I, I made my way. I fumbled through the hallway. I was like hands on the wall, that whole thing. Find myself to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom. And by the time I get out of the bathroom, I was completely disoriented because that's what the darkness does. And so I have no clue. I know that I need to go this way down the hallway, but there's like one of three bedrooms that I need to go into. I can't find any of them. So I'm like creeping around and I start doing the like, the, 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 have you ever done the scream whisper before? Like a lot of you in worship right now, you're scream whispering at your kids like, be quiet. You're louder than your kids are right now. But I was like, Nate, like Nate. But he was sound asleep because it's so dark in his house. He's sound asleep. And so I'm thinking there is no way I'm going to make it back to his bedroom. And so I'm fumbling around and finally I, I, I get to the passageway. And I go into the room and I get to, to, the, to the, the edge of the bed and I'm like, oh, thank goodness, I'm here. You've been there, right? Where you're like, okay, I'm gonna feel my way. Here's the, the edge of the bed and I go to the side of the bed and I'm creeping between the side of the bed and the wall and I get to, a, it wasn't Nate's bed. It was his parents' bedroom. And so I lay down and I hear his dad's voice going, wrong bed, Jeremy. And I'm like, oh, No because there's only one thing that was scarier than being in the dark, and that was being in the bed with Nate's dad. <laughs> and I was lost because there was no light, and I didn't know where to go, and I'm thinking, can somebody turn on a light in this joint? <laughs> so I know the way that I'm supposed to go. What if you looked at your life, and you are Stepped into the reality that that you're the light. That if we're going to be honest, ourselves included, there are times when we go through life and and we're bumping into all sorts of things. And so Jesus says to us, hey, you're the light of the world. So let let your light shine because, well, there is nothing that's powerful enough that can rival the light. I don't know if you've seen it uh, lately. Just uh, in the last couple of weeks, there have been the first images that have come back from this new telescope that they have. It's a space telescope. It's called the John Webb Space Telescope. I'm imagining it's named after a guy by the name of John Webb. Not sure. Um, but I'm not in, into astronomy at all. I'm not into the outer space. But this thing has fascinated me. And they're having pictures uh, that are coming back of things that we've, we've never been able to see them this way. There was the Hubble telescope that was there before and that was able to see things more in 2D. But the the John Webb telescope is bringing back imagery and they're they're using like infrared. So they're able to see by by nature of, of how the images are coming back if those things are moving out or if they're coming back in. This picture right here is they say that any of those bright lights that are there. Those are those are galaxies, and if you were put uh, put a, a grain of sand on your fingertip, and you were to hold it up in the night sky, those galaxies, in relation to the space, are a size of that grain of sp- sand, and and they show the the enormity of God's creation. In fact, this. This telescope is so powerful that they're saying that there, there is light that is being seen and, and is being received that goes millions and millions and millions of light years away from us. In fact, they say that there is light that's being seen that was there at the inception of time. At The very beginning. Before it was the, the dark space. I know we're in church and some of us are like, no, Jeremy, you can't say that because that's not the way that the Bible says it. No. No, we get into that false dichotomy that says that faith and science, that they cannot relate to one another. In fact, in reality, they complement each other quite well. They just answer different questions. Science answers the question really well of, of the what and how. That's what we're seeing when it comes to space. And faith answers the question of the who and the why. And the fact that they're telling us that they're seeing light that that is coming right from the time when that dark period ended is something that you and I already knew. Because that's the way that God's story starts. I mean, what does it say in in Genesis chapter one? In the beginning, The earth was empty and it was void and it was entirely dark. (laughs) But then God began to move into the darkness, sent the darkness running. And I wonder what it would have been like to be there. I wonder if it would have been like an instantaneous thing, like God said, let there be light, and boom, like there was light, and it illuminated everything. Or I wonder if it took some time. He said, well, Jeremy, it happened in the first day. Well, that word for day in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, it can mean a 24 increment of time, 24-hour increment of time, but it also can mean an undescribed season. I wonder if it would have been incredibly loud when God spoke and light happened or if it was whisper quiet. But here's what I do know. Is that when the light came, everything changed. Because the light's that powerful. And God placed the light... To bring an end to the darkness. And creation is evidence of that. I think about David in in Psalm 8. My my favorite psalm. David looks into the night sky and he says, oh Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name. Your your glory fills the earth. The the heavens declare how, how uh, how, how incredibly complex and majestic your creation truly is. But then David starts to wrestle with this idea of identity. He says, because when I look at the enormity of creation, I start to think about who am I in relation to all of that? Who am I that you'd think about me, that you'd recognize me, that you'd know me, that you could use me? It's a common question. David doesn't stop there. David says, yet you you created me just below the angels. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, yet we've so narrowly missed being God's bright with Eden's dawn light. You put us in charge of your handcrafted world. If you took the beauty of the night sky and the beauty of who we are as Individuals in this thing called humanity. God would choose us every time. The crown of his creation. And you're no exception to that. And I don't care what it is that you think about that. Our perception of ourselves does not get to change the reality of of what God's truth is. I mean, look what God said to the prophet Jeremiah, where God says, Jeremiah, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is, Jeremiah, how you're going to be a light shiner in this world. And, And Jeremiah says, who am I that you could ever use me to do that? I'm just me. Like, I'm not good at much. And God has a sit down with Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, don't think that you get to determine who you are. I've already determined that. That score is settled, that case has been secured. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb, God says to Jeremiah, that we're reminded of, that God says to us, before you were born. Think about this. Live into this for just a moment. Give yourself the freedom to entertain this thought just for a moment that before you were born, that God set you apart. That word in the, in the Hebrew, it literally means he created you to be holy. You were other. You were set apart. You were marked. You were claimed. You were, you were called to do what God created you to do. To shine his light. This is what Peter's telling the early church. Scripture passage you read, heard read just a, a few minutes ago. This is what Peter is saying to the, to the early church. He had, had started churches in Jerusalem. Remember before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gives this great commission. You're going to be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And Peter's the one who Jesus had said, you're the rock in which I'm gonna build my church. So Peter's living out his calling and, and he's kind of reporting back to some of these people who were starting these churches that were beginning to follow Jesus and he's having to encourage them. Because he'd told them about the light that had transformed his life and he was sharing with them and he was telling them to go share it with the world but, but it wasn't coming very easy for them. because see if this sounds familiar to you at all, that the world around him, they weren't very interested in hearing about what Jesus had done and could do. They were being persecuted. And I'm not gonna for a minute think that here where we live, that persecution as we share the message of the gospel is the same for us as it was for them. There are places in our world right now that it is the same. That people are being put to death for it. But I don't think it's any less challenging at times. You say, I get it. God has a call. He has a claim. He set me apart. He's called me to to be the light of the world. but, But I don't know how to do that where I find myself in my work, at school. I'm not sure what it's gonna cost me. Are people gonna even listen? But here's the thing, it's worth it. I mean, it's so worth it thinking about it in, in your own life. That you may have been that person that somebody was like, I don't know if I should share it with them. Because I don't know what they're gonna think. But you're here. hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So yeah, but then how do I do it? I don't know enough. I haven't studied enough. I don't have all the answers. Heck, I still have a whole lot of questions. Welcome to the club. Peter says, he said, just be ready to share your story. When somebody asks you about the hope that you have in Jesus, be ready to share what that hope looks like for you. That's how easy it is to be somebody who can daily shine the light of Jesus Christ. I think we make it and we kind of created in our own minds to be something that's so complicated so so scary so so uh, uh, outside of what could ever be possible and s- for for us and so we make it so complex that we we dare not do it and it just just means being you I want to make it really easy because the first thing is you, you don't you don't have to be anybody else you just get to be you I said, oh, that doesn't work like that. No, absolutely it works like that. Because when we try to be somebody else, it never goes well, does it? I remember when I was student teaching, I went into education because I wanted to coach. That's what I thought I was going to do uh, for my career, for my, uh, my occupation, for the rest of my life. I, w- I was going to be a baseball coach. That's just, that was my greatest passion. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, God had other plans. And uh, part of it was because I don't, I don't think I was a very good teacher. But I remember the very first class that I had that I was going to teach a lesson on my own. The guy I was coaching uh, baseball with, he was my Legion baseball coach. We didn't play high school baseball in Fargo, North Dakota because it was just too darn cold. Uh, So we played Legion baseball. That went through the summer. My coach was, his name was Kurt Gigstead, And Kurt had asked me if I'd be his assistant. He'd moved into the head coaching role. And the cool thing was, is that his wife, her name was Susan, and she was an English teacher, which is what I had gone into. She was an English teacher at one of the high schools in town. And so I was a student teacher with Mrs. Gigstead, and I coached with Coach Gigstead. It was the greatest uh, gig ever, pun intended. Gigstead, gig, all right. That one wasn't in the notes. Don't go off script, Jeremy. So the first day she uh, the first day I was going to be able to have a, a class uh, that I was going to teach on my own, she said, you can write the lesson plan. You can do it all yourself. We were going through the play from Shakespeare, Julius Caesar. I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I love that play. I was super excited about it. She's like, here is the act and the scenes that we're going to cover. Just do it the way that you want. So I scoured. I got it so ready. I was convinced that when I did that fifth period class that there would be a line of students at the front of the classroom that would say, thank you Mr. Johnson. Like this was just life-changing for me like I always thought English was the most boring subject and now I think it's just absolutely riveting in fact I was convinced that Susan Gigstead, that my supervising teacher was going to say oh I'm the one that's trying to instruct you you should be the one that instructing me because it was just perfect on paper until I started teaching it I'll never forget being in front of that class and there was a kid a couple rows ahead of me, like two, three chairs in front of me. His, ironically, his name was Jeremy. And I had my manuscript, I had all my notes, I knew what I was gonna lecture on. So I was going from my notes to lecture to writing on the chalkboard, we didn't have a whiteboard, we had a chalkboard and notes to chalkboard, notes to chalkboard, I was doing such a great job for like the first five minutes and all of a sudden I started to hear noise. And I look and this, punk, this kid named Jeremy is, is there <laughs> and somehow without getting out of his chair, He had taken the whole desk and flipped it upside down. He was like, hey, look at me. I'm like, that's not good. And then I look in the corner of the classroom and there's a girl that's lying on the floor with her feet in the air up against the wall. And she's like doing snow angels on the wall. And I'm thinking, how did this get so off the rails? And then there was another kid in the other corner of the class that was sleeping so soundly that there was a pool of drool on her desk. And I'm thinking to myself, how did... How did this go so wrong? And so thank God the period finally ended. And Susan said to me, would you like to talk about how that went? And I said, no, I don't. She's like, well, how do you think it went? I said, it was a failure. She's like, well, you need to talk about it because you're going to have to do it again tomorrow. I said, no, I'm never going to do it again. Because I don't know how to do this. And she said, yeah, you do. But what I saw today, if I could share it with you, is I saw somebody that was trying to be somebody else. And Jeremy, I don't know if you know this, but I imagine you can remember it, that high school students have a way of sniffing out a phony. And I don't just think it's high school students. Look, we don't do very well when, we, when we're phony to who we really are. And to shine our light in our daily lives, just be you. Don't try to be somebody else because everybody will sniff it out. Think about John the Baptist, who was very comfortable, eccentric most definitely, but very comfortable with who he was and what God had called him uniquely to do. He was in the River Jordan. He was baptizing people in the repentance of their sins. He was preparing the way for when Jesus would come. And lo and behold, one day at the River Jordan... John sees Jesus and he points out to him. He says, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. And people start to leave John and they start to follow Jesus. And one of John's disciples, he says to him, he says, John, you got to quiet down a little bit because you're working yourself out of a job. And John says to his followers, he says, no, that's exactly why I came. I am not the Savior. I can't pretend to be the answer that people are looking for. I am not the savior, I'm only the one that's been called to point the savior out. Just by doing the work that heaven put before me. And it's the same for all of us. The places that we occupy in our daily lives, do you think those things don't give us the opportunity point to the light just be you where wherever it is that you are and stay connected to the one who created you because it's not about you because there are times where it can get difficult and we can get caught in a place where we we feel as if we're falling when I was little at our lake cabin, I was the third of three kids. And I th- always have thought that by the time my parents got to me, they're like, we are almost finished. If we can just limp this kid through to the end, we'll be done as parents. And so my parents didn't give a lot of rules to me. Uh, and I, I, often, I often talk to them about that because I'm like, don't forget that I'm the favorite. You know, like you should have taken more care with me. But, you know, they, they don't see it the same way. <laughs> But when I was little at the lake cabin, they let, me do, uh, they let me do my favorite thing. It was take our little fishing boat. We had a little fishing boat. It was one of those three-bench fishing boats, like aluminum thing. And it had like a, a six-horse uh, Evinrude motor on it. That thing was old. Like we bought the boat when I was four years old. And when we bought it, it kind of had already lived half of its life. That motor on that thing was like 150 pounds. That thing was just it. But it was my favorite thing because it gave me freedom. And my parents would let me drive that boat as long as I stayed in the bay in front of their dock. And this is up for debate. And the debate is is whether or not they told me that I needed to wear a life jacket or not. My parents to this day, they say, we always told you you couldn't take the boat out without a life jacket. And I always will tell them, then find me a picture where I'm driving that boat with a life jacket on. I mean, if it was that simple, you were the one that was taking the pictures. You didn't seem to be that concerned. But the, the deal was is I could only do it if they were on the dock watching, which has always caused me to wonder, did they just want to see me go down? Like, think about it. Like, if I'm going down, I'm like, well, see you later. I mean, I didn't have a life jacket, but I would just go and I would go and I would go. And then one day I was going, I'd do figure eight so I could go over the, over the, over the waves, and it was the most fun thing. And one day as I was going, all of a sudden, the, the motor fell off the back of the boat. I know. It was awful. And somehow, miraculously, little Jeremy, who probably at the time weighed about 75 pounds and had this 150 pounds, somehow, miraculously, I held on to the motor and it, it, like, it, it, it dragged me to the back of the boat. But I had enough presence of mind to kick my leg out and, and, and to latch a hold on the bench that was right in front of me. And so I was caught in a really difficult position because... I could let go of the motor and and it would go down and I'd be in a lot of trouble. Or I could hold on to the motor and I could go down and I'd be in a lot of trouble. And so I just started screaming. Like, help, help, help. And I I will never forget it. And my parents don't even debate whether this actually, Oh, and I hear the voice of my father from the shore, the voice from heaven. I mean, it was Jesus when he was baptized in the river Jordan that the heavens part and the voice of his father in heaven comes down and says, "This is my beloved son in whom I find great joy." So the voice of my father cutting through my distress, and all I hear is, "Whatever you do, don't drop the motor." <laughs> and I thought to myself, "Really, really? Like, why? Why don't you? Why don't you? Because." It was great value to him. (laughs) And he didn't want to lose it. And he ended up getting out there in a split second and picked up the motor for me. So I could stay connected to the one who could save me. Same for us. One of the most powerful things, I believe, is how we can be reminded on how our stories connect to God's. And they just do. It's Isaiah who God speaks to the prophet Isaiah that says, don't be afraid for I'm with you. Stay connected to me. Don't be discouraged for I'm your God. Stay connected to me. I will strengthen you and I will help you to do whatever it is that I've called you to do. So stay connected to me. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. I will be the one that will hold on to you when you don't know if you're able to hold on any longer. As we shine our light in our daily lives, we we just are who we are. We stay connected to the God who loves us, who's saved us, who has a promise for us. And then we just do it the way that Jesus did it. Which is the most important thing. So what did did Jesus do and how did Jesus do what he did for us? He who had everything gave it away to the ones, to us, who without him had nothing. So he gave it all, so we'd have access to it all. It's love. It's the most powerful thing. Jesus didn't go out and tell people how wrong they were. Jesus went out and person after person after person after person after person. He told them how loved they were. And we're called to do the same. Like there's no wiggle room around it. I mean it's Paul to the church in Corinth. Who says I could speak in the tongues of angels. But if I didn't love. We'd be nothing more than a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal. I could have faith I could move mountains. But if I didn't love it would be useless. I could have the gift of wisdom and of of prophecy. But if I didn't love, why would it why would it matter? And love it never gives up and it never loses hope. It endures through every circumstance. It lasts last forever. People might not always remember what it is that you say but they'll remember how it is that you made them feel. So love them. Case closed. That's what God did for us. That's what Jesus says in, in John chapter 15. He said, this is my commandment. This is what you're to do. Love. Love the way that I've loved you. It's in this movie. John Nash, he had gotten to a place that exceeded any, uh, any imagination that he ever had of what he could attain. But his life had been filled with a whole lot of hardship. Struggled with addiction. He struggled with rejection. He struggled with being able to relate relate to other people socially. He dealt with uh, mental illness. He was schizophrenic. He got himself to a place where he was like the greatest, and now he's going to receive the Nobel Prize and. Because of how eccentric the guy was, they're wondering whether or not they should allow him to speak when he receives this distinguished honor. And they're wondering if he does speak, what is it that he's going to say? And his response, what he points to that allowed him to get to the place and to the places that he had gotten to, It was powerful and it was surprising, but it shouldn't surprise us. Take a look. Thank you.
0: I've always believed in numbers, in the equations and logics that lead to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask, what truly is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back, and I have made the most important discovery of my career, the most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any logical reasons can be found. I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. You are all my reasons.
1: through the power of love that John Nash was able to truly discover who he was and what he was here for. And it's the same for all of us. It's God's love that's revealed through God's light that shines in our lives, that brings us to life. And that's what Jesus calls us to do. You don't have to be anything special. Because you're special enough. You don't have to do anything miraculous. God's got that covered. Just be you. Stay connected to him. And love the world. Look, you got a huge head start on this. (laughs) Here in West Des Moines, I don't know if you leave our worship center today we're in the middle of a school supply drive because there are kids that are getting ready to go back to school who are in a family situation that they don't have what they need to have enough to go back to school and so we don't think that that's okay and we can do something about it because remember it was Jesus who had it all and saw us who didn't have anything apart from him so he gave what he had so that we could have. That's love. I mean, you, you're like, Jeremy, that's just bringing a school supply. No. You have. Others don't. So you give so they will. And then Jesus says, go and do the same. That's the secret not just to the lives of the world around us. That's the secret to our own life. we find our calling in life when we begin to love the world in a reflection of God's love for us and we encounter that in this meal that we're going to share here in just a moment I want to release it to our campuses but here in West Des Moines hear the words of Christ's promise for you his love for you it was in the night in which he was betrayed our Lord Jesus he took the bread and after giving thanks he broke it and he gave it for them all to eat and he said this is my body and it's broken for you Take it and eat it and do it to remember me. In the same way, after they had eaten, he took the cup of wine after giving thanks. He gave it for them all to drink. He said, this cup is the new covenant, in my blood, and it's shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink it and do it to remember me. So as we prepare to receive this gift from, gift from God, I'm gonna invite the communion servers forward and as they come, come forward, would you please join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, Practice open communion here at Hope. Everybody is welcome. If you desire Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, we invite you to come. You'll receive a piece of bread. You can eat that, and then you can, you'll receive either the dark-colored wine or the light-colored grape juice, if, and then drink that. If you need allergy-free, they're on the sides. Please go get that whenever you need to. But all is ready. Come and receive the good gifts of a good God. Amen.